Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Andrew Curry. Andrew started as a financial journalist for the BBC before being hired in 1993 to launch Britain's first interactive television channel. From then, he joined the Hendley Centre, which morphed into Canter Futures. Andrew maintains an interest and continues to write on digital media and the notion of the creative economy. Andrew also keeps a number of blogs on a range of topics, and one of these topics was the Three Horizons Futures Method that he co-authored a paper on with Tony Hodgson. And that method is close to the most cited method by guests in previous podcasts. But Andrew's interests are broader than futures, and often he has found blogging on culture, history, cycling, and recently Brexit. Andrew is also the editor of the journal from our professional association, the APF. Welcome to FuturePod, Andrew. Um, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Um, it's a privilege to be on FuturePod with so many um, other esteemed futurists that you've spoken to in the past. Thanks. Yeah, look, no, it's certainly, you were certainly one of the ones I wanted to bag too, so I'm certainly very happy to, uh, to have you to join the pantheon of futurists. Thank you. Let's start with question one. And question one, as you know, is the uh, is the chance for Andrew Curry to tell the Andrew Curry story. So what is it? What is the story? Well, you kind of touched on it in your introduction, Peter. I mean, I was a BBC graduate news trainee um, when I left university. I worked as a broadcast journalist for uh, 10 years at the BBC and at Channel 4 News. At that stage, I kind of believed that you could change the world through um, good quality journalism which was a kind of a perverse thing to believe, really. I'd actually read quite a lot of sociology of uh, communications at university. And all of those papers basically said the structure of news, content of news is determined by the structure of news. So I kind of spent 10 years working in these organizations, proving that the uh, sociologists (laughs) were right. I left, uh, I worked as a producer for a while. I tried to set up a production company. I wasn't successful. It was bad timing, but also I I hadn't realized that successful production companies are sales-driven, not ideas-driven. And then I, out of the blue, I got hired to launch this interactive TV channel for a cable company in um, in 1993, um, at the point where I was actually trying to leave the television industry. <laughs> and and obviously, obviously, looking back from 2019, that's quite interesting because interactive TV now is a failed future, yeah. you know, it's sort of, nobody talks about it. But obviously in 1993, it was a possible future. And there were kind of several consequences to that. I mean, it was an interesting challenge, but uh, it meant I was online very early. I think I went online in 1993. I think 2% of UK households were online then. It meant that I ended up representing the company at a lot of events on the future of TV and the future of technology. I kind of, if you're doing that work, you had to have a subscription to Wired when it was kind of, um, you know, the house, the house mag- magazine of new media, if you like. But obviously, not only was it the house magazine of new media, but you couldn't read Wired without reading about Peter Schwartz because he had that hotline, you know, GBN had that hotline into yeah. Wired. So that meant I kind of, you know, read the After Longview when it came out in paperback. I 
I read Art Kleiner's book, The Age of Her- Heretics, which got a lot of profile in Wired. You know, it had that kind of classic account of the shell scenarios. So I kind of, I was already tuned in, if you like, to some of the kind of the future stuff that was emerging. As a side project towards the end of the time working for that business, I wrote a paper on um, the future of digital media for Foresight and for Arts Council England. And that kind of led me to join the Henley Centre in 1999. And I joined as a consultant, hadn't been a consultant before. My main focus was supposed to be working on technology and the internet. Actually, clients lost interest in that when the dot-com crash happened. But we were already doing futures work because I'd immersed myself during the 1990s. I had some expertise. The scenarios we were doing was a kind of bricolage. You know, you could look at the method. Basically, people had come into the business and brought bits of their scenarios, methods from other businesses. And when you looked at the method, you could I could tell it wasn't quite right, but I didn't quite know why. So I kind of went off on a kind of um, a self-learning thing where I just self-learning thing where I just kind of read my way through the futures literature, you know, and I bump into people. I bumped into Wendy Schultz, who's obviously always very generous with her time and her thinking. Yeah. I kind of started identifying things that didn't make any sense to me, you know, um, you know, the whole shell assumption that you can't influence the future, which, you know, Adam Kahane obviously was already sort of writing about as a, an absurd notion. So kind of just started putting that together. And one of the things I kind of think about that is that the futures literature is actually not very extensive. You know, if I, if I'd suddenly got an interest in paleontology or something like that, I would have probably had to go and do a full doctorate and go back to college and all the rest of it. But actually, if you were keen on it and dedicated about it, you could read your way through the kind of the key texts and futures in, in several years and sort of be, be pretty, pretty much up to speed. The other thing that happened there was that we won a project from the UK Cabinet Office to write a report called uh, Understanding Best Practice and Strategic Futures. And what was driving that was uh, Jeff Mulgan. He's, um, he was in the Cabinet Office at the time. He'd come in with uh, New Labour. He wanted Whitehall to be more future-facing. He knew that the only way to get them to be more future-facing was to actually produce evidence that it was a good idea because, you know, Whitehall is very evidence-driven. You know, that was a kind of an interesting report. We had to assess lots and lots of different futures organisations, you know, some private, some public, Singapore government, SRI, those sorts of people, and kind of score them, you know, sort of one of those kind of more blobs the better sort of reports. And then uh, once we'd done that, Jeff said, okay, so what are the learnings from, from your analysis so far? So we ended up writing a report which was Understanding Best Practice and Strategic Futures. It's still online. And as a result of doing that, basically the government instructed people to actually take account of various futures trends in their um, planning, uh, to the point where actually it said, if you don't do this, we will take money off you. So the government suddenly created a really large and burgeoning market in public sector futures in the uh, UK. We'd written the um, report. So, you know, for the next effectively nine or 10 years until we had the coalition and uh, austerity began, effectively i was doing a lot of public sector futures where most mostly scenarios so kind of that's that's the story in terms of how i became a futurist like so many futurists it was a bit of an accident yep a welcome accident but still a bit a bit of an accident did the uk foresight project kind of kick out of that work uh that's an interesting question the um uk foresight project already existed but what actually happened with UK Foresight, I, the first project I sold at the um, Henley Centre was actually to Foresight. 
And that was on the old model. And the old model was um, basically a dinner club model. So basically, you would appoint a chair. The chair would get some people that he thought would be good to talk about this subject. Yeah. Consultants would be hired to um, write up the thoughts of the, this, this group of moderately great and moderately good. Mm. And then it would be published. And the, the model that sat behind that was a model that by having influential people being involved in the work, they would then fuse it. And actually, what we know about the way organizations do that sort of thing is that people who go to those sorts of meetings aren't the people who diffuse it. So the first project that I sold for um, the Henley Center was um, something on the future of e-commerce, which was on that kind of dinner conversation model. I think we did six meetings over a period of time with kind of different subjects, and we would bring new stimulus in. What happened in, um, I think, 2001, so I think this is probably in parallel, one of those things where things, things change in parallel. So David King had become chief scientific advisor for the British government. And obviously, you know, people may well know, you know, he's been the British climate change ambassador, you know, fantastically um, capable chief scientist. And he said, well, you know, if we're going to do foresight, we're going to do it properly using proper futures methods, proper systems methods. He was, I think, a geographer by background. So kind of in parallel with the kind of initiative from the cabinet office, you also had uh, a chief scientist coming in. At a time when actually there was some speculation about whether the Foresight Programme would survive, and saying, well, yeah, the Foresight Programme will survive, but it's only going to survive by being properly engaged with futures and systems thinking. That's now quite a few years ago. What's survived now? Let's now run the next 15 years or so. It's still there. It's obviously running on a fraction of the budget and a fraction of the staff. It runs a foresight framework. There's a core team who um, are futures literate, you know, and I've done bits of work for them recently where they've been helping a department think through, use futures methods to think through some policy issues. They do a number of programs. It tends to be a little bit more um, academically oriented than it was. But, you know, if you go online and look at uh, Foresight Now, you'll see things like uh, a Future of Cities program, which has some really good papers attached to it. There's some work on the uh, future of ageing isn't so much using sort of big scale scenarios work as it used to. It's more a kind of analytical framework, but there's still there's still work being done there. Good. Let's try question two, and where I encourage the guests to talk about methods and frameworks and to take, without necessarily teaching the audience about the method, but explaining the method, the use of the method, maybe framing it at a more, you know, uh, sophisticated or nuanced level. I'm delighted to, to hear that you're happy to talk about your, I'm going to say, famous uh, Three Horizons methods. Happily. We've just been talking about Sir David King and what he did to Foresight by making it futures literate. The team that he had running Foresight at that point were a woman called uh, a woman called Claire Craig, who was you know as sharp as a razor, and a career civil servant who now working in New Zealand called Andrew Jackson. Who uh, Claire had come in from outside. Um, Andrew Jackson was a kind of career civil servant, and by the time um, we got to 2005, when they commissioned a project on intelligent infrastructure systems, which is broadly speaking in the widest possible sense about the future of mobility. Yeah. They'd already done quite a lot of projects. And so they kind of got, you know, there's, there's something about doing futures to get better at futures. And uh, and that was kind of what they commissioned. So they decided this project was going to um, integrate scenarios and systems. 
Tony Hodgson, um, I'll talk about some more, but he's a systems guy who trained with uh, Jay Forrester, was brought in to do the systems. We were commissioned to do the scenarios. The Scottish futurist, Alistair Wilson, was hired to kind of make sure the pieces sort of stayed knitted together. Yep. And Bill Sharp, um, who'd obviously been working with Tony Hodgson on various things, they knew each other quite well. He'd been a, a director of research at Hewlett Packard in Bristol, Hewlett Packard Labs in Bristol. He was commissioned to do a kind of an innovation piece. And what this was, was 50-year scenarios. You know, one of the questions that I asked Tony right at the start of the project was, how do we understand rates of change over 50-year scenarios? You know, most of the scenarios that people do are much shorter term. You can do kind of fairly conventional projections and all that kind of thing. But, you know, as soon as you're getting out to 50 years, you're dealing with kind of long-run systemic change. And we had this sort of odd meeting, which was actually in a storage room of uh, <laughs> Royal Horticultural Halls, which is kind of close to where the government department was based. I mean, I actually remember it quite well. We were sort of ended up sort of using some conference tables, which were propped on their side as a, and a big bulk as a kind of table to actually sort of draw stuff, as Tony was explaining, that uh, he and Bill had been developing this idea called um, Three Horizons. And maybe that would work to actually uh, sort of do that kind of analysis of how the scenarios would evolve over time. And I think, you know, I think it's probably quite important that neither Tony nor Bill were futurists per se. They kind of, they kind of come, they collided with futures from outside because it, it meant that they were thinking about these things in a, a different way. Yeah. And so what we, what we did in the, um, in the project, which we, I think this was the first time it was, actually used in a in a project we used three horizons to test the narratives the you know the unfolding transitions using each of the scenarios as a horizon three outcome so yep. i'm sure most of the people who listen to this will probably used use three horizons you know you end up with a, a possible future or a preferred future which you pop in the kind of horizon three at the top right hand of the chart you're you're in horizon one at the moment Part of the system's language about this is horizon one is uh, always in the state of decline because entropy exists and therefore it's always losing fit with its environment. And there is this uh, middle area, which really isn't, you know, there's a kind of a slightly philosophical issue here, which is horizon one is clearly an existing system. Horizon three is a future system. Horizon two isn't really a system. It's a kind of a, as I think you just described it uh, as we were talking before, is the, the, messy, um, the messy transition. You know, so Horizon 2 is the place in which that kind of transition happens. So what happened as we uh, started using it to test each of the scenarios was that we discovered it also helped to identify implications of, uh, of change, which, you know, is one of those areas where for some reason futurists are particularly poor at getting from this is a possible future to this is actually the implications of change and, and therefore from that to these are leverage points or yeah. these are areas of, that one might be able to influence. You know, you can't control the future, but you can influence it by what you choose or choose not to do, as Wendy Schultz said memorably. <laughs> you know, so it, it helps you get to sort of areas of choice. And so um, I started using it in my other scenarios practice. We were doing a lot of work with scenarios at the time. It turned out to be a really robust tool. The reason, you know, and having discovered it was a robust tool, and sort of, you know, I would go back to Tony and Bill with questions and comments and observations from from my practice. So, you know, I was I was kind of patient zero here. 
And so the reason I ended up writing the paper with Tony, Bill, Bill was too busy to do it, to be involved. He was happy for us to proceed. But I ended up writing it because I, I was the sort of the, the serious the serious practitioner rather than the person who uh, originally um, dreamt up the model. You know, there's this kind of critique I see at Three Horizons. You know, it's just three lines on a page. Um, well, it's not really just three lines on a page because it is about understanding change as systemic. I mean, actually, that three lines on a page criticism is true of the McKinsey Three Horizons model, which basically says you've got to keep the near term, the medium term and the <laughs> long term in your head at the same time. And, you know, if you're, if you're using that as a really sophisticated tool, you can then use it as a heuristic to say how much of your time and your yeah. innovation budgets you should be applying to each of those three three windows. But, you know, there's nothing, you know. McKinsey keep sort of pumping that out as one of their classic papers. And when you poke it, there's really nothing there. <laughs> Some of the things I've learned from Tony and Bill from using Three Horizons, um, perhaps sort of moving it beyond the kind of just, well, it helps you with transition. You know, Tony Hodgson, because he's a systems guy, says, well, actually, when systems transition from one system to another system, they need energy to do that. Yeah. And so one of the questions he always asks when you're looking at a transition is, what's the energy there? Where's the energy coming from? Yeah. And obviously that doesn't necessarily need to be physical energy, although quite often it is. Um, you know, it can be money, it can be social, you know, social energy, it can be all sorts of things. And and actually, you know, one of the um, things I learned from Tony very early on using Three Horizons, because, you know, we were doing a lot of two by two work there. I've kind of moved away from that in my my practice, but... He sort of, we were drawing one of those and he said, well, you know, futurists often just think that when you go from, you know, the top left, if you get an inflection point where you go from the top left scenario to the top right scenario, you're just kind of sliding across that line as if it's a, you know, a state boundary or a county boundary. But actually, there's a row of hills there, you know, you're actually having to push it up and get it to come down the other side. You know, it's a classic way of, you know, that a systems theorist thinks about systems change, you know, you're sort of, what's the new what's the new sort of natural location of the uh, of the system? You know, so so he sort of has this very strong thing, where does the energy come from? I, again, I find, you know, when you're talking to people about how change happens, that's a sort of a, a valuable question that people don't usually think about. Yep. You're going from system one, system two, where does the energy come from? Bill has a different question, which he uses a lot. Um, he's, you know, he obviously wrote a very good book. Um, he decided he was, for personal reasons, he was going to use... Um, Three Horizons effectively as a tool to get communities or groups to act purposefully towards their preferred futures, which I know is also the way in which it was used in the uh, Rockefeller project, which Tanya Hishad talked about on FuturePod. Yep. And, and, and Bill's quite interesting here because he says, well, you know, Tony talks about you need the energy to go from one system to another. Bill, Bill brings an ecological view to this. He says, well, systems actually seek out abundance you know ecological ecologies look for abundance they don't look for scarcity and we always think about scarcity because we've been brought up on economics and that's all our language about scarcity so you know his question is as you're looking at our preferred future or where the system is transitioning towards is what is the abundance that that system is seeking what's the source of abundance it might find and you know again you know when you're actually trying to think about how do you describe future scenarios how do you describe preferred futures being able to say what source of abundance is that world going to draw on to fuel itself is a kind of really rich question which people don't normally think about and it actually starts producing quite rich views of the uh, future 
Yeah. So a couple of the other things which I think are really rich in the um in the practice here, and this is more um this is both from Bill and Tony. You know, one of things that Bill talks about is the roles in change. You know, he has a really interesting exercise where he he says, well, you know, the horizon one of the problems with Horizon One is it's often seen by futurists especially as kind of where the villains are. Yep. You know, all these bad people trying to hold <laughs> the system back, you know, keep it in. And, you know, and Bill's an engineer, so he talks a lot about lock-in. You know, there's usually reasons why systems are locked in around a, a set of practices and a set of institutional arrangements, a set of infrastructure arrangements, you know, that to do with stability. You know, we do want we do want to plug, you know, plug something into the wall and discover that. You know, something is getting powered by that. And so he tends to use language which is more about maintaining, you know, rather than kind of, and sometimes he uses words managerial, which again, I mean, that's all right, it's, it's neutral, but maintaining is a richer language. You know, what is what is in the Horizon 1 system that the maintainers want to maintain? Mm. And then, you know, obviously the Horizon 3 is associated with visionaries. The bit in the middle is typically associated with entrepreneurial ways of thinking about the world. And, you know, one of the exercises that Bill does when he trains Three Horizons is he has a conversation around a, a future, an issue of future change between the maintainers, the entrepreneurs and the visionaries. And he sets this up the first time around by just giving you a couple of cue cards, which are basically encouraging you to have a negative conversation where you're suspicious of the motives of the rest of the uh, people in the conversation. Yes. And as you can imagine, that conversation never goes very well. And, and this is all actually online. This, you know, one of the good things about Three Horizons is through a combination of the International Futures Forum and H3Uni, which was a set-aside project of Tony and uh, Bill, this, the amount of public domain assets for, for Three Horizons is absolutely brilliant. I mean, I credit to the International Futures Forum for putting all this stuff in the public domain rather than kind of keeping it as a private set of proprietary practice. You have that very destructive conversation where everybody's suspicious of each other and then he does a little review well how did that go and everybody's really angry you know everyone's sitting in the room angry frustrated <laughs> cross and then he says okay we're going to do this again but i'm just going to uh, just set some different guidelines for the conversation and he basically gives you a little cue this the second time around which is okay you actually are have got some anxieties about the future he says to the maintainers you know you're actually trying to learn from the uh, what the visionaries and entrepreneurs are saying from you the visionaries, he says, say, well, you don't want to smash everything up because actually that's going to be worse than what you're trying to get, you know. So maybe just give people a little bit of space in this conversation. And obviously, you know, the entrepreneurs always end up acting as a bit of a bridge here. And actually that ends up being a much better conversation. And he, do, he does it deliberately because actually um, if, if you're doing that kind of work in the workshop setting where you're trying to get a, a, a community or a group of practice to improve their future you have to be having a constructive dialogue and you know one of the merits of three horizons it gives you a map for everybody to have the same conversation around but if they're having a negative conversation like that you're not much better off than you were before you started but if you're having a positive conversation you are in a better place than you started and one of the things that leads to is you know what not only what what lock-in is in there and, you know, there's a whole bunch of language about 3H minus, which is lock-in, which is just trying to perpetuate itself for reasons of short-term advantage. You know, you might look at the fossil fuel companies in the current world and say, well, that's a pretty good example of that. Or you might look at the businesses which are in the first horizon, which are trying to promote change. So, you know, if you're looking at climate change or carbon emissions, you know, the insurance companies probably, in, you know, for 
you know, for obvious financial reasons, but the insurance companies now seem to be in a position where they're trying to promote change. They're kind of 3H plus activists who are trying to change the rules of the current system. They're trying to shift, shift the lock in. And, you know, one of the things you're quite often looking for in the second horizon is how do you change the rules of the uh, system lock in? Because you're not going to lose lock in. You're only going to move from one locked in system to another locked in system. But actually, you have to work out how you, how you do that in a way that uh, people are willing to go go with it. You know, is that going to just break and refreeze? Is it going to unfreeze and refreeze, as sometimes happens? Or do you actually have to have to navigate that properly? Bill also has another tool, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but it's a social shaping model called the technology access model, which uh, helps you explore in more detail the way lock-in works around technology, the way social values and uh, entrepreneurial behavior might might disrupt it, which uh, one of my ambitions over the next uh, couple of years is to act as a midwife to getting that paper written because it's a it's a kind of a, it's a kind of child of three horizons in some ways it's an additional tool that helps you get much more um rich conversation about it and it just deserves to be in the public domain really again I'm, I, I think I'm one of the few people who's actually using it in my my practice. Well, when I heard you talking through those those more nuanced understandings, especially the one talking about the maintainers and the entrepreneurs and the and the visionaries, that also struck me that that conversation, if you think of Sahail's causal layered approach, is that you're starting to land the conversation at the kind of worldview, maybe even at the myth level of when people talk about their future. Oh, I'd agree with that completely, Peter. Yeah, absolutely. I think causal analysis is actually quite a good tool. It complements uh, actually one of the hero stories that the IFF has about um, about maintainers is they did a project in Fife, which is a county in Scotland, which was about transferring the elder care system from being basically hospital based to being community based, um, which they succeeded in doing over a period of about three or four years. And one of their kind of hero stories in that process was that there was a guy who was effectively responsible for the um, finances of the um, health system. And, uh, you know, and the health system, all the British health systems, like a lot of health systems in the world, they're kind of, you know, they're patched over with, uh, you know, sticky tape and uh, sticky, sticky tape and plaster at the moment. And, it, and he'd said, well, actually, I was getting quite depressed about just sitting here, making sure the finances didn't fall apart in those three or four years. But actually, if that's what we're doing, if that's what you need money for to be able to make that system transition, that feels like a really worthwhile thing to be um, running the system for. So, you know, that was a classic example of a maintainer wanting to be able to be actively supporting change that he could see the, the worth for. And and if you're, you know, and actually the entrepreneurs and the visionaries in that system not being able to do anything if he wasn't able to commit yeah. to finding the money to do it, you know, so that he was finding the energy to allow that transition exactly. to happen, if you like. Um, tools that spin off out of Three Horizons, Tony Hodgson's done a lot of work developing as a practical tool the dilemma resolution thinking that uh, Charles Hampton Turner originally pioneered in the 1960s and 1970s. Yep. And one of the things Tony would say is a lot of issues you get in the second horizon are dilemmas which are effectively dilemmas between rates of stability and rates of change. So, you know, if you look at that from a small business perspective, you know, you need to be able to carry on evolving and developing if if you're trying to grow. But actually, most businesses go bust because they run out of money. So, you know, that classic, that's a classic sort of dilemma resolution. How do you maintain 
enough resources to fulfill your program while also continuing to evolve at a rate that you need to evolve to to develop what you're doing as a as a business or as an organization or as a practice so you have some impact and again all of this is written up you know they, they have been kind of write-up heroes so again you know another tool comes out of the systems background that actually when you start using three horizons properly the depth you can actually start getting to sort of really sort of rich forms of analysis yeah i think the thing that i heard this notion of the boundary and actually you know the boundary conditions of the system that the system itself what you described as the dilemma of you know systems ability to evolve versus maintain itself and of course that flows across to the roles of people because if you see yourself as a maintainer and you maintain by fiercely maintaining your boundary <laughs> then of course yeah. you're resisting change but you can also maintain um, identity but allow things to move through the boundary yeah that's a very good that's a very good sort of metaphor for that i think and and, and in some ways those conversations that bill structures as part of his 3h uh, three horizons immersion process are precisely about trying to get people to move from your first description there about maintaining the boundary mm-hmm. to actually what's the boundary for you know what's the purpose of the boundary you know the purpose of the boundary is to maintain the integrity of the system yes you know but but actually if you're if you are in a maintaining role and you are willing to accept that the system is you know decaying because the system's decay because of entropy and therefore you need to maintain the integrity of the purpose of the system rather than the structure of the system you're already in a different conversation yeah exactly right yeah that's great thanks very much Andrew it's good question three often a difficult one even for esteemed futures thinkers but Andrew Curry citizen of the world how are you making sense of the emerging futures around you and uh I don't think there's very many good futures out there at the moment. You know, we're on a 50 or 60 year slowing of the economy. You know, so that's not something that's going to come back very fast. Even if the economy did come back fast, it would carry on trashing the environment. You know, I mean, literally burning the environment at the moment, but, uh, you know, trashing the environment. You know, I'm over influenced possibly by the uh, limits to growth. But, you know, if the base case of the limits to growth, which is tracked pretty well against the uh, data. Disappointingly so. Of course, absolutely. But, you know, the base case, I kind of have to remind people about this from time to time. You know, it's an industrial collapse in the next 10 years and a population collapse in the next 20 years. You know, that's not particularly <laughs> attractive future. You know, my son's 23. You know, if that's the future, he's going to live through it. Mm. I probably won't. I'll maybe see the industrial collapse and not the population collapse. I'd probably be part of the population collapse, actually. One of the ways I've had to make sense of this is I I read a paper by um, Jim Data a while ago where he talked about the uh, kind of what what are the things which create generational level change. And, you know, one was generations, one was um, economics, and one was technology. And I kind of developed something from that because I think actually the generations bit of that conflated two different things. It conflated demographics and values. So, you know, one of the things I do if I just need to tell people about the future in five minutes, which obviously is one of those things that people sometimes expect futurists to do. And I 
I used to resist it, but actually this works quite well. As I, I tell this, I tell that story, you know. So, you know, d- demographics, you know, we're in slowing demographics. You know, peak baby was in, I think, nineteen ninety two. Peak workforce is in twenty twelve. We now got a shrinking global workforce. You know, so some of those kind of crises about work, which we're now living with the political consequences of, but probably just a result of a kind of particular sort of peak peak population moment, you know, before, I mean, obviously population will carry on growing, but a rate of growth of population. But anyway, so demographics are slowing, you know, economics, I've just talked about 60 years of slowing growth. We've got a productivity puzzle, which nobody really understands. Nobody seems to know what to do about it. So that's probably not going to speed up anytime soon. Technology, and I read lots of stuff which says we're still in the beginning of a huge technology wave and everything's going to get transformed by lots of things. But Actually, you know, I'm a kind of quite a big fan of the Carlotta Perez um, innovation model, which obviously she developed some work from work by Christopher Freeman at Sprue. And, you know, that says that, you know, we have 50 to 60 year technology waves that follow S curves. We're on the, the ICT wave is the fifth one. And actually, if you look at that as an S curve, we're at the end of autumn to use Theodore Modis's S curve seasons model. And, you know, we're at the beginning of winter. And, you know, I, I was just talking to somebody this morning who said that Google has now got uh, antitrust cases outstanding in 48 of the 50 American states. And, you know, and one of the things that happens at the end of these technology cycles when they actually hit their winter phase is finally the external costs become too much for the rest of society to put up with. And, you know, we saw the same stage in the auto cycle. So this is UK examples, but we saw, um, and they're very similar elsewhere, though, you know, drink driving legislation, you know, seatbelt legislation, you know, parking restrictions, a whole lot of new sort of traffic regulations, all at around, all mostly in the kind of 1960s when the car was going from its, uh, through its kind of, you know, autumn to, to winter phase. So if one of the things you're thinking about is where does, where does energy come from? You know, one of the things we know is that energy doesn't come from slowing systems. So, you know, the other part of the uh, diamond is um, values. You know, that's kind of splitting out the generations into demographics and values. But obviously, values are shifting quite fast. And, you know, I actually trace this back to Generation X. I did some research which suggested that the values of Generation X compared to boomers, um, certainly in the world of work, was the place that the real shift happened. But it's kind of taken us two more generations to get to a point where that's the kind of majority of the population. You know, so I mean, just going back, we were just talking about this before, but I did it when I was doing the research on attitudes to work because yeah. the hypothesis that was there was well, how did the millennials change the workforce when they're actually still relatively young? You know, they've only just started arriving in management positions in the last four or five years. And the answer is that actually Gen X wanted to do that, but never had permission because they were too young and not enough of them. <laughs> you know, so I, I, you know, when I was doing that research, I, um, I read a, a piece about the grunge gen- generation, the point where none of these um, young people, these Gen X young people, had really gone into work yet. But there were, you know, there were some definitely slackers, you know, there's a whole slacker generation thing. And there was a piece in time from, I think, 91, but it might have been 92, which said the, uh, these young people would rather climb Everest than uh, climb the corporate ladder. <laughs> and, you know, when you look at that from 2019, you think, well, yes, and, and, uh, and why wouldn't you, you know? So the, the fact that, you know, that kind of tail end of the kind of the, the complete boomer dominance that actually the time could write that and the journalists wouldn't look at the copy they'd just written and think, God, that just looks plain weird. Just kind of tells you something about the scale of that transition. 
you know, there's a very good podcast by John Higgs talking to Ezra Klein, where he talks about the um, the Gen Zs, you know, centennials, as uh, futures, kind of futures used to call them, you know, who are actually like the millennials, but much more activist, you know. So obviously, you know, the school strikes for climate change are, you know, fascinating. But also, um, you know, John Higgs observes in that, in that podcast that, you know, the biggest marches around gun control in the United States have been driven by high school students. So that those kind of values, you know, you know, at one level, I think we're just looking at kind of Richard Englehart's hypothesis, which has always been a bit disputed about, you know, materialist values to post-materialist values or modern values to post-materialist values, sort of seems to have been right. You know, we've moved from a world of hierarchy and authority, which are dominant values to autonomy and self-expression. When you look at the values which sit behind Trump voters versus Clinton voters between Leave voters in the UK and Remain voters, you can see some really strong values around authority and hierarchy against um, autonomy and self-expression. So, you know, it's sort of driving, it's driving our politics at the moment. But that's sort of the only place where I kind of really see energy. You know, if the other thing you need for system change is abundance, you know, what's sitting in the middle of that diamond, obviously, is resource crisis or climate change, you know, which has kind of been driven by all four of those kind of demographics, economics, technology values. If you look at some of the University of Cambridge research, they say that, you know, we'd need a $90 trillion investment over 15 years to reduce climate change. And I think we're starting to see signs that that might happen. You know, I see the same language in HSBC, you know, which God knows hasn't got a great corporate reputation for being progressive, but sees that that's the way the places might be changing. You know, you're seeing the whole Green New Deal idea is around how to use the fact we effectively have free money at the moment to rebuild our infrastructure. You know, that's the one place where potentially there's a there's abundance, you know. So when I talk to clients about this, I kind of, you know, I put that diamond up on the map and I kind of fade out the economics, demographics and technology and say, the only place we might see significant transition is if that kind of values shift also drives a transition, an investment transition around um, resources and infrastructure to actually drive the kind of zero carbon transition. Even if we did, it might be too late to get to actually, you know, I mean, but, you know, that's that's the one, you know, that's my one glimmer when I'm looking, you know, as a, what features do I see as a citizen that actually that combination of young activists and kind of hardened investment managers watching their assets become increasingly stranded and governments and sort of, you know, some governments who maybe think the Green New Deal is a way to rebuild their kind of rather slow-moving economies. You know, actually, that's the one place that you could maybe see see a kind of a positive future out of all of that. Yeah. So what, what keeps Andrew going as an individual? Um, who talks about the future. While we might well imagine that we're going to go through a difficult time, and certainly all the indicators are it's going to be difficult, what inspires you? What gives you hope? Well, I, you know, I left, uh, I left Cantor Futures in April and joined the School of International Futures, SOIF, in, um, in June, having taken a little break to cycle across Britain. And one of the things that I like about uh, SOIF as, um, as a business is that it talks about um, using futures to influence public policy. And it also sometimes talks about, you know, the function of foresight and futures is to make change happen in a very explicit way. And you know, we would talk about that in the commercial consulting environment to our commercial clients. But that was typically more about informing 
strategic strategy or innovation within the kind of confines of the business. So, you know, what what keeps me going is that actually we should, you know, just because we can't do everything, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do something. Foresight and Futures is quite a good tool to help people, you know, align. You know, one of the things we know about change is it really only happens when people are aligned about, first, about what the sets of problems are and B, about where the places exist that they can make some difference. And Futures and Foresight is quite a good set of tools to do that, to actually create that sort of alignment and create change to happen. So, you know, what keeps me going is that, you know, I wouldn't want to be sitting here in 10 or 15 or 20 years if it had all gone wrong and thinking, well, I just sat here and didn't do anything. Yeah. Good. Thanks. Moving to question four, because I think we've started to touch on this, but this is the, the one that often people, when they come to the field at the beginning, is... How do I describe what it is I do? So how do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Um, I've got a very dull explanation. I kind of I kind of tell them that, you know, I look at drives of change and emerging trends and analyse them to help organisations think about strategy and innovation and change. You know, as I've just said, uh, that's in my current role at SOIF, uh, that's about um, using foresight and futures to improve public outcomes. But I kind of think that we need some kind of humility about what we do. You know, yes, epistemological status of futures, you know, I know the anticipation guys are trying to do some work on that, but it's kind of pretty ropey in some ways, you know. It's probably a longer conversation, you know, and I'm always reminded that Napier Collins obviously was at GBN and worked at Shell before that. He used to say, well, I'm not sure I'm very good at doing futures, but what I can do is give yeah. clients a broader view of the present, which is kind of, you know, effectively operationalizing the whole argument about contextual environment, which Emory and Trist developed back in the 1960s. You know, I mean, one of the other things is that I don't believe that there are no future facts. You know, I know that's one of the mantras. It's all Wendell Bell's fault. You know, there are no future <laughs> facts. I think I think there are some future facts. You know, there are long long run patterns. We've talked about some of these in the conversation. I think once you start putting together possible futures with deep structures of change and uh, active behaviour, you actually can start narrowing down to sort of a much sort of smaller range of what's likely to happen. Now, whether that constitutes a future fact or not, I'm not sure. But one of the um, one of my frustrations, we might end up talking about this some more. One of my frustrations about futures is that one of the things you're always supposed to have in the the good set of scenarios is the coherent narrative of how you get from here to there. And actually, what my my learning is that actually gets in the way of thinking about the future, you know, because actually the deep structures are making the change happen, and what's then what then happens is the events sort of are sort of molded by that. So, you know, just a couple of examples of that um, and these are both from British politics but you know going back to some of my earlier scenarios work you know 15 years ago there was a period where we kept getting patterns of change which suggested that it was possible that you'd get a, a left-leaning Labour Party you know at a time when you know Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were sort of king of the Labour Party you know classic if you like centre-left I mean Blair's case possibly even centre-centre Classic sort of centre-left 
good, uh, you know, traditional labor labor space. You know, and it's the minute you sort of put up a scenario which had this kind of relatively radicalized Labour Party, people say, well, that's just not going to happen, is it? Well, how would we get how would we get from there to here? You know, and if you actually go through how we did get from there to here, well, you had a Labour leader who wanted to democratize the party, so he changed the election rules. You had an election where, for the sake of fair play, they put a left a left candidate on the ballot who then happened to win. You know. If, if I'd written that as a scenario narrative in 2005, 2006, everybody would have kind of dismissed it mm. out of hand, you know? Well, that's ridiculous. You know, Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, Tony Blair actually says, don't worry, Jeremy Corbyn is not going to be Labour Party leader anytime soon, I think, in response to these. He's actually on the record of saying that, you know? You know, that's the kind of classic example of the kind of structure driving, the structure drives the change rather than the narrative drives the change. You know, equally, I think there are, I'm trying to avoid talking about Brexit, you know, local local grief and all, private grief and all that. But um, on the night of the evening when uh, Johnson had um, prorogued Parliament, I was at a leaving day for a former colleague. And, uh, you know, people were sort of talking quite excitedly about that, what's going to happen next. And I've been doing quite a lot of reading about pace layers as it happens for something different. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of said, well, you know, that's messing with the governance layer, which is one of the slow layers that regulates the system. So I don't know what's going to happen next, but what you know when you start messing with those layers, those deep layers, is all sorts of unexpected things happen next. Mm. You know, and I don't think we're quite at the end of the unexpected things that are going to happen next. But actually, very, very quickly, we've seen all sorts of the system pushing back to protect protect the governance layer in a way that actually I think from the point at which it happened it was sort of almost in, you know completely predictable. I know we don't deal with predictions, but actually, again, you know, structures. Structures are the things which shape patterns of change, and uh, you know you can sort of see the sort of the way the structures behave. Yeah, I mean structures are predictive in the sense that you know if you look at structure, it tends to suggest what the structure expects the future to be. Yeah, I mean to me, one of the things that emerges here is not is that is that very old notion of preparation. You know, the very old futures notion of being prepared for. Yeah. Yeah, a very certain future it's it's that notion where futures is a much more modest and a more prudential approach to you know preparing for something so what, i'm just picking up on what you just said there about uh, preparation one of my um colleagues when she was doing an introduction to futures and foresight presentation used to have a slide at the end which uh was basically just in kind of really big types at 80 point font was it's not about being right full stop it's about being ready which you know at one level is the kind of shell scenarios model you know it's about being ready you know my personal view is that if actually we just kind of you know duck that actually that's not going to turn out well for anybody i think you have to act and i think the element around the deep structures is also there's an element you know if if it's just obviously a deep structure is the only thing that uh creates change there's no point in doing anything now we're already in a kind of deterministic world you know as i said said earlier the epistemological status of futures is kind of contested and, and actually one of the things i like about the um anticipation group is that they've kind of brought philosophy back into futures after a period where it kind of really sort of vanished from the um surface at all but you know the other part of that is about active behavior what is possible for actors to do so Often actors are locked in, but as you were talking about this earlier, there are actors who will say these are the boundaries of the system we're going to operate within them, and these are and there are going to be actors who say these are the purposes of what we're trying to do, 
and we will move the boundaries so we deliver our purposes. So actually, the work here is about influencing what the actors think is credible and possible. Mm. You know, so yeah, we're not we're not locked into a complete world. We're locked into a world where what the choices that actors make will kind of influence the way in which those um, deep structures kind of uh, manifest themselves. Let's go to last question. I'm enjoying the conversation, but we're going to have to bring this to a, <laughs> a conclusion. So question five is the open question, and I'm, you've already led me on what you wanted to talk about. You said you've been doing a bit of reading and research and reinvestigation of scenarios method. Um, is that what you want to talk about for your last question? Yeah, I think so. I'm, um, I'm a member of the advisory board of uh, the Institute of Social Futures at Lancaster University, which is a, a cross-departmental Kind of innovation space inside the university. It was co-founded by the um, sociologist uh, John Ory, and I met him actually on the infrastructure, intelligent infrastructure systems project, which was origin of Three Horizons. He was an academic, he was one of the lead academic advisors on that project, and we got on. Sadly, he died a couple of years ago, but I've kind of maintained my um, involvement. Anyway, um, you know, they're building up the institute, and they're currently producing a the Social Futures Handbook to explain their kind of view of it. And I was asked to contribute a chapter on scenarios, you know, which would represent a kind of critical history of scenarios. Chapter's a bit long at the moment. It's going through a slightly messy peer review process, but, uh, you know, it'll get there. And that gave me a chance to kind of go back into the history of scenarios and kind of realise that actually the evolution of scenarios as we understand them was actually quite contingent, you know, that... uh, the idea of possible futures doesn't really appear in the literature until the mid-60s. You know, the planning, there was this planning crisis in large firms in the early 1970s because the external environment suddenly became really unstable. Mm. You know, rather than being this kind of radically disruptive innovation, I realized as I was going through the re- literature, trying to work out the question of what problem did scenarios solve, <laughs> I realized they were actually quite a modest response to business planning crisis, you know, they were a form of, you know, dynamic conservatism, I think Donald Sean talks about, which is, you know, what's the minimum response we can do to maintain our structure in the face of this external change? And, you know, hence hence scenarios. One of the um, this kind of related set of conversations I've had there, which is, you know, when you do scenarios with organizations, you know, sometimes they're useful, but when you do them with organizations, they quite often have quite a short life inside the organization because when you're trying to explain, well, here's the scenarios and here's the implications and these are the things that we need to do, that bit in the middle is always a bit of a black void. The people who've been through the scenarios building process with you have internalized all of that. They get it in a heartbeat. The people who haven't are just saying, okay, so I've got these final scenarios and I've got these implications and I really can't see how those ones are connected with each other. You know, one of the things that's happened at my last business is we actually um, – moved away from scenarios. Uh, my former colleague, Joe Ballantyne, at the Futures Company, did a lot of work on this. And what we moved towards were effectively future domains around a futures landscape, you know, five or six or seven domains of change that describe the most important elements of change that you're going to, uh, we're going to affect the, um, you know, the system that was under scrutiny. Mm. And what we realized is we, and, and clients get that straight away, you know, they can look at the domains and see how that might lead to innovation. They can look at cross impacts between the domains and see how you might get to more disruptive change. 
And what we realized was that actually, in terms of the social life of the Futures Project inside of the organization, like social life of the knowledge about the project, it was much easier to keep it alive because actually the people who had been involved in the project could explain it to the people who hadn't in a way that the people who hadn't would say, oh, yeah, I can see these domains have changed. Those make sense. Don't, don't agree with that one so much. But I can see how you got to this, you know. Yeah. And I think um, we've talked quite a lot about, you know, futures being a vehicle for change in this conversation. And I think um, I think it comes back to the impact that we're trying to have as futurists. People who've been involved in the process can tell a story about how they get from domains, you know, a future a future set of domains of change to actually what change they should be doing and why. Actually, it's much more likely that you're going to have impact. It's much more likely that the organization can align about the need to do something different. And I, I think possibly as futurists, we haven't spent enough time thinking about how knowledge works in, in the organizations that we're working with and kind of, if you like, creating that kind of social life of, of the future of the futures thinking once, you know, once the consultants have left and they've gone home and they've moved on to the next project. The, the thing I like about what you talked about in terms of domains of change is that that creates a tension that is unresolved and the actual, it then becomes the conversations and the strategies and the actions in the organisation that to some extent deal with the tensions. But the scenario, of course, resolves all the tensions and therefore I think takes the juice out of the process. Oh, that's a very interesting idea. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and obviously that's, that's quite right. You know, sometimes the domains are actually in a state of tension within each other. We went through a period in 2015, 2016, where one of the domains that was coming up repeatedly in this process was, uh, well, we'd sometimes call it digital twilight or, you know, that sort of thing. So it was about that kind of the whole world that we're sort of seeing much more clearly now, which is concerns about privacy, concerns about fraud, constraints on what you can do in the digital world. You know, which actually interestingly combined sets of values. You know, I, I noticed my, um, you know, my son's generation, they, they, they saw Mark Zuckerberg with his uh, little flap over the camera on his computer, I think, in the Senate hearings. And they all do it. They all do, they all do that now, you know. Um, and, they're much, and they're much more um, acutely concerned about privacy than the rest of us are. Yeah. And, you know, in 2015, 2016, when you presented that, a lot of the organizations were still basically catching up with digital. You know, so you did also have the, you know, the intelligence everywhere type, type domain emerging as well. You know, and, that, and then you ended up with actually a kind of, you know, even just between those two domains, you ended up with a conflict that needed to be resolved in some sort of way. You know, and, what, and that might have just been a sort of a classic sort of option thing. You know, don't don't bet completely on intelligence everywhere. If actually suddenly you've got to find a way of backtracking to allow digital twilight, the digital twilight zone to be represented in the way that uh, you're operating in this landscape. Yeah. And again, I yeah, I love Horizon too. I love the notion where it's messy, creative, bricolage, you know, goodness knows what to do, rather than this kind of elegance in the way. Well, I, I, as you say, the scenario is quite a complete thing. And, you know, the literature tells us it needs to be a complete thing. It needs to be coherent. It needs to be credible, you know, all the rest of it. Mm. Yeah. Well... I think I've got my value of your time and I know you've got to move on. So I'm going to say on behalf of the FuturePod community, Andrew, thanks very much for taking the time out to talk with us. Well, no, that was a real pleasure and kind of very stimulating. And I've also got several new ideas from talking to you, Peter. So that's, uh, that's great for me as well.
This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.